Welcome back to our weird history episode where we seek to bring you tales of the strange and unusual throughout history. Today, we are actually continuing yesterday's episode. So this is part two, right? Right? Oh, oh and it's a part two. Oh, if you think part one was crazy, strap yourselves in. Okay. All right, I'm ready. Click. Let's go. Because this one's a roller coaster. In case you didn't just immediately jump in from part one, just to quickly recap where we left off, not the entire episode, because that would take the entire episode. But to recap, Victoria Woodhull and her sister Tennessee and Victoria's common-law husband, Colonel Blood, have now moved to New York. Victoria had received a vision from Demonstides saying that you have more things to do and there's a house ready and waiting for you in New York at this address, go and find it. So believing that this is a prophetic vision, the three of them head up and move to New York. Now, before we get back into Victoria's crazy life, let's take a very, very brief detour into the women's suffrage movement that was going on at the time in 1868. At this particular time, there were two main camps of the suffragette movement. The first is the American Women's Suffrage Association, or the AWSA, and two was the National Women's Suffrage Association, the NWSA. The major distinction between the two is that the American Women's Association was only for women's suffrage, as in the right to vote. The NWSA, the National Association, was for equal marriage laws, temperance, abolition, the right to vote, equality and gender equality, and anything else they wanted to, to throw in there. So it, there is one that was just kind of the conservative and one that was very progressive. Yeah, so one encompassed more. Yes, the national one encompassed a lot more. That's where you also have Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and all the major players in the National Suffragette Union or Association. And that will very much come into play, so keep that in mind. So while they're in New York and after they've settled in, Victoria and James Blood, her common-law husband, would take work going through various brothels. You have kind of the lower end brothels and the incredibly expensive high-end brothels that made tons of money. And it's the higher ends that you want to end up working at if you're going to be a prostitute, let alone a madam, because you're going to have the higher rich clientele and not everyone's coming in just for sex. Sometimes they just want to come and talk because they're rich and people talk to them all day so sometimes you just want someone to talk to but it's usually the higher end brothels with the higher end clientele that are going to end up spilling gossip and secrets and stuff to these high-end prostitutes and that's where you would want to be if you're going to be a prostitute because then you can get the the dirt and dish on other people that also comes into play And the two of them 
are working through the brothels, going up the quote unquote ladder, if you will. And her father is now moved in with them because Buck is ever present. And while he's there, moved in with them unexpectedly, he's still peddling his wares and his elixirs. Now, at one point, Buck has a grand idea that he's going to get a medium, a medium, a meeting with Cornelius Vanderbilt, the Commodore. And if you're not familiar with the Vanderbilts, let alone Cornelius Vanderbilt, he was one of the richest railroad barons, probably next to Carnegie. What in the world popped into Buck's mind to think that he would get a meeting? Vanderbilt would occasionally let people to come in and have meetings with him so he could talk to the populace. Oh. Which is an unusual thing. Quick, close your door, Vanderbilt. Close your door. No. In this case, it's an absolute no. Vanderbilt was also, because this is not an 1868, so this is po- three years post the end, three, four years post the end of the Civil War. So many people have died. And everyone is more or less, at, particularly at this time, spiritualism is getting a big kick because everyone wants to converse with the dead to talk to their dead relatives that have lost, they've lost in the war. It's, it's a really big thing. It's very common. You had that after post-World War I as well. Cornelius Vanderbilt also claimed he could see the dead. I don't know necessarily converse, but he claimed he could also have visions of the dead and was very much into spiritualism. So Buck's mind went to talk to Cornelius Vanderbilt and introduce him to his daughters, Tennessee and Victoria. Tennessee and Utica of all the Claflin sisters are viewed to be the most beautiful, particularly Utica, but Utica is the one drunk and high on opium. So Tennessee is the much more sober one. When Victoria and Tennessee meet Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt immediately becomes incredibly captivated by both women. He's interested in Victoria for her spiritual healings and her visions and was interested in Tennessee for her body because she's beautiful and he's old. How come I'm not surprised? No, I would say, I mean, at this point, I don't know specifically when Vanderbilt was born, but he is not too off. He's, he's, he's sort of, he's older and not doing so well. So I want to I put him in his 60s at this point. And Tennessee's younger than Victoria. Victoria is now about 28, if I remember correctly. So Tennessee's in her early 20s. First of all, it's a really good catch to even be able to meet Vanderbilt, let alone Vanderbilt liking you. And very quickly, Tennessee becomes Vanderbilt's mistress and his live-in nurse because she also has the gift of spiritual healing. At this time, as I mentioned, Vanderbilt was significantly older. He was also suffering from gout, which can be a very painful and a lot of swelling of the joints and stuff. And she would nurse him and relieve his illness, you know, getting him off the high food or high fat foods and the, all the junk and everything, taking him out for walks, make sure he got some exercise. 
among a lot more than that too. Uh, as I get said in the last episode, a lot of my information comes from the Profiles and Eccentricities podcast on Victoria Woodhull and her life. There's a lot I'm leaving out because it's not something we usually explicitly talk about on the show. So if you want a lot more information, check out their podcast. I'm leaving a lot out, but there's still a lot to talk about. So don't worry. Tennessee is his living nurse, his healer, and he's emphatically infatuated with her. But Vanderbilt is currently married. After some time, his wife passes away. And immediately he asks Tennessee to marry him, which, oh my goodness, <laughs> to be the next Mrs. Vanderbilt at that time was like marrying a king. And at the time, Tennessee turns him down, which is kind of funny because Vanderbilt's not used to getting no from anybody, not even his own children are allowed to say no to him. But when you're that personally close, intimately close with Vanderbilt, I think you have a little more clout. She didn't turn him down for the, the marriage. As far as I understand, she just said, not yet. Ah, uh, so it wasn't a straight up no, which changes the situation as well. Because if it was a straight up no, I feel like he'd have like an apoplexy or something and be yeah, really yeah probably, probably would. I'm pretty sure she's just like, it's not the best time for, for that question. Um, uh, I, you know, if things are, we're still working on some things right now. Also, your wife just died. <laughs> Maybe give it another month. So while Tennessee is working on Vanderbilt's physical health, Victoria is there working on his spiritual health. And at what, one point, even though he believed in her gifts, he had a particular proposal for her. And he offered her at the time in 1868, 1870 tops, $10,000 to bring forth the spirit of his dead father. Victoria said no. Holy mackerel. But she said, I can't, I don't know if she said, I can't do that because it's not like, she didn't claim to be a medium necessarily, but she would have visions and could tell people stuff. But I don't know that she ever claimed to be able to converse with other people's deceased relatives. But also a medium, like, could she control it? Because visions are like, they pop in and out supposedly whenever they want to. Right. Not in a specific environment or something. My understanding, mediums have a little bit more control. Right. They're more channelers rather than just prophets and visionaries and I don't think that Victoria ever claimed that she could be a channeler I've not heard that though she turned down Vanderbilt and said no I'm not going to do that she did say however let me be your financial advisor because now that she is working in the very high-end brothels she has insider knowledge from her high-end clientele and some of them are general elite nemesis nemeses of Vanderbilt not like they hated each other but you had people work you know on one side of Wall Street and some people on the other side of Wall Street now at one point on, on the advice of Victoria not long after 
telling him that she could give him a lot of financial advice, she tells him to adjust his stocks on the Central Pacific Railroad, which he owned. Because she claimed that she hadn't had a vision and in a trance, she saw that the stocks were going to go up. And they did. Significantly. At the time that Kim Vanderbilt invested more into the stocks of his own company, the stocks rose from $134 per share to $165 per share almost immediately. Hot diggity dog. Oh, no, I don't even. Quite a bit. It's not even ending there. Vanderbilt invested in 3,000 shares, not $3,000 worth of shares. It 3,000 shares at $165 per share. Millions of dollars. Well, I guess he had, was pretty smart in listening then. Oh, it doesn't end there. Of course not. Of course not. This is Victoria Woodhull. It doesn't end there. He told Victoria as she became his financial advisor or at least one of them, that if her vision that she had comes to fruition and he makes more of a return on his investment, he will give both Victoria and Tennessee half of the money he makes. Holy. Oh, I've got a numbers for you. Oh no. I'm going to be on the floor. With these yes. numbers, aren't I? You, you will be on the floor with these numbers. So the first time with this, they make $93,000 in 1868, which comes close to around $2 million today by about 2022. Major win for everyone all around between the three people. Now in 1869, price of gold kept fluctuating because post-civil war you have a post-civil war and the gold rush and finding new veins and mines of gold gold was fluctuating and there was a thing called the gold standard prior to that time meaning that the price of gold would not fluctuate and therefore you could base your economy on how much gold costs which we don't do today because we don't really have that much investment in gold, but it's kind of like how much is the American dollar versus the world, other world currencies. And Victoria has another vision and she tells Cornelius to buy gold at $132 a share. What he doesn't know is that Josie Mansfield, Victoria's one of Victoria's best friends, has moved out from California. She was one of the actresses that she worked with. And she has now moved to New York and is working with Victoria and this high-end brothel. And Josie Mansfield has two incredibly high-end uh, clientele, one of them being Jay Gould. But she's got two high-end clientele who are very much into stockbroking. And they share information between the, the two of them, Victoria and Josie, and they find out that between the two men, there's a scheme to corner the market against the other stockbrokers on the gold market. So that the men are going to buy up shares as much as possible, flood the market, and then sell before the price drops. And it was only between those two men, but they shared it with their 
favorite prostitutes. So the girls had inside knowledge and they shared it with each other. And that's how it got to Cornelius Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt takes $9.5 million, his entire reserve. That's $9.5 million in 1869. That's close to $200 million today and invest it in this scheme. That's a lot of money. Vanderbilt swimming in cash. If you think Hearst had a lot of money to build that castle of his, he's got nothing on the Vanderbilts. There are a reason the Vanderbilts are called one of the richest, like the American nobility. They're one of the richest families that have ever lived in this country. Isn't a college named after them? Is it? Vanderbilt? Oh, yeah, Vanderbilt University. Uh, university? I'm pretty <laughs> sure it's named after them. I mean, there's a, there's a hotel. There's Vanderbilt Hotel, which I think is in Virginia. Uh, oh, no, sorry, that's the Biltmore, which the Vanderbilts, I believe, own. But anyway, so Vanderbilt yeah. invests. It was named after Cornelius Vanderbilt. Named in his honor, Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, Tennessee. Okay, it's next door. Yeah, it's located in Nashville, Tennessee. It's next next door to Virginia. Nashville is awesome. Close enough. Um, <laughs> um, so Vanderbilt invests $9.5 million at $132 per share, making unbelievable amount of money. And that's when the price was low. Just days later, after now three of these stockbrokers are investing into this gold scheme, the price goes up to $141 per share. So now it's even more, making them even more money. Victoria then goes to Vanderbilt and tells them that she had a vision of the stock market and she saw a golden bubble. And in her vision, when the bubble burst, she saw the number 151 and tells him that when shares reach 150, sell everything. Again, not knowing, believing in her gifts, Vanderbilt tells her that if this is successful, I will also give you half of these profits. Vanderbilt also not knowing that that is when the two other stockbrokers are planning to pull out their money as well. So it's sort of a twisty, turny little thing here. Now, what's unbeknownst to anyone else that's working on this scheme, except for the two men that are working with Josie Mansfield, realizing that there's a major problem on hand, the government decides to find a solution to quell the market because it's just going to make everything crazy if it's not already crazy enough. And their plan is to flood the market and buy shares in order to make the price go down. And because these two particular stockbrokers have governmental connections, inside connections, they are told by their connectors when this will happen and when the government plans on flame the market with their shares. So they sell before the government puts all their money in and they can make a, a massive return on their investment. Eventually, the price rises to $164 a share. It started at 132. That exact same day is when the government invests 
their money and to the shares in order to lower the prices. And within just 30 minutes, the price drops from $164 a share back down to $132 a share. And the market goes wild. Because if you didn't pull out beforehand, you've lost a lot of money now. Vanderbilt in 1869 off of this one investment made $1.3 million, which is over $24 million today. He pays Victoria and Tennessee the half profit he promised them. They each got $6 million. Unfathomable. I'm speechless, hence unfathomable. Jeez Louise. And maybe you might think, oh, okay, I've got $6 million in 1868, which is, I didn't do the math. Uh, it, it's, so 1.3, they've got, They've got $6 million in today's money each between Tennessee and Victoria. And probably most other people, let alone most women at the time, would just take that money and immediately retire and buy really large houses and spend lavishly because they don't have a, now they know how, they no longer have to work a day in their life anymore. But that's not Victoria and Tennessee. They both combine their earnings and get this, start their own brokerage firm. Not surprised. I mean, if you can, why not? Now they weren't the first female owned brokerage firm, but they were the first female stockbrokers in America. Mm. That's also not the very first thing Victoria would hold. It only goes way crazier from here. Kitty. The brokerage firm was called Woodhull, uh, Claflin and Co. And within just one month of opening, particularly probably on the reputation of working with Vanderbilt, who would almost every day come to the, the brokerage firm and visit the girls. And, and it's not so much, yeah, it, it's just, there's a lot of connections here. Within just one month of their brand new brokerage firm, the sisters had made so much money with their investors that they bought a second location. Mm. They're in downtown New York, as far as I understand from this. The great thing about their brokerage firm is that it wasn't just any old brokerage firm. They bought a, each one, each brokerage firm was a really large brownstone building, which is just a really large brick building at the time with multiple, multiple rooms. So you had various floors. It wasn't just, they weren't just the only women. They were sort of, I guess, in a sense, a safe haven for other women in the city. Other women who wanted jobs that weren't prostitution that would pay well and give them safety. So, and then also was a place for women to come and invest their money because they knew it was gonna be safe. So these women, made major reputations in New York. The firm doesn't also just become another brokerage firm, but because now that you've got all these women coming in and investing and now working there who were previous prostitutes, 
it becomes essentially a gossip farm full of insider knowledge, which is also sets it apart from a lot of the other male-owned brokerage firms in the area. The two sisters, they didn't own just the most notable firm of stockbroking, let alone being the first two female stockbrokers in America in 1870, but they arrived in style whenever they went to the firm. And a solid gold carriage, both wearing blue velvet gowns and real silver hairpins in their hair. I mean, we could talk about Cinderella and her pumpkin carriage here. I mean, basically, that's that's the story right here. It's a rags to riches story. I mean, that's basically what this is, except it's via their own work. And real life. Yeah. Not a fairy tale that isn't actually a fairy tale. Yeah. They would be known in the area as the bewitching brokers and also the queens of finance. And um, this is where some things start to come tumbling down because what goes up always has to come down. With their newfound millions and wealth, the sisters buy a large brownstone and make it their home and live together in there. So essentially a brownstone at this time was like buying a mansion. Just it's like a townhouse, but it's a mansion. And would you like to take a guess what happened as soon as they finished settling in? It caught on fire or something. Uh, what? All 15 members of their family, including her ex-husband Canning, shows up. Can't these people just disappear? 15 members of her family show up, begging for money and raiding their lives. They were able to succeed without their family and become incredibly independent and incredibly wealthy and incredibly reputationable. I think I just made up a word, but that's okay. And their entire 15 member family shows up and moves into their house. I think you meant reputable. And why didn't they just kick them out? Never mind. It's Victorian era. Never mind. You know, that's a really good question. And from my understanding, it's because Victoria was raised with the notion of free love. Meaning that you are free to do what you want when you want, particularly if you're a woman, because back then you weren't allowed to. And it just wouldn't be in Victoria's personality to deny her family from doing something they wanted to do. And that isn't very good for her. Immediately, go ahead. Kick them out. Kick them out. Not in her personality to do that. I know, but it's probably better. She absolutely should have, but she doesn't ever. Immediately, the entire family takes control of the house and runs amok. Her mother, Roxy, and her youngest sister, Utica, again, is an alcoholic and uh, opium addict, drink all the alcohol in the house immediately. And when they run out, they turn to drinking something called Bay Whiskey, which was a men's cologne because there was alcohol in the cologne. Yeah. Very gross. Yeah. It's not even so much that they could have asked their daughter for to go out and buy more alcohol. No. 
they would just eat her and drink her out of house and home because these people are awful and it does not in there because this is the Claflin family and this is not what they do. They, they don't know control. Yes. And not only does Roxy and Utica drink all the alcohol in the house, including Nance Malone, whenever they want to go get something, they don't just ask their, they don't ask Victoria, Tennessee for some, to borrow some money and then go up to the store. They take Victoria and Tennessee's jewelry that they have earned that is incredibly expensive and pawns it off to go buy more alcohol. Utterly awful. Buck, the father, this incredibly abusive, exploitive father, realizes he no longer has to make or sell his elixir to make money. He's got two incredibly rich, incredibly independent daughters. The two he would exploit early in their childhood have now made so much money, he doesn't have to do anything except live off of their money. He hangs out at the brokerage, inside and just outside the door of the brokerage, and would charge things to his daughter's accounts, like buying a brand new suit and not telling them he charged things to their accounts. So he would run up debt on the girls. He would also strike up conversations with men who were there to sell their bonds at the brokerage firm and would convince them because he's their dad that he would hand the bonds over to the girls and it'd be completely fine. But that's not Buck. He pockets the money. Of course he does. Of course he does. At one point, someone, he was outside the brokerage firm. Someone came up and to the firm to walk in. They had $3,000, which is $60,000 today in bonds that they wanted to invest with the firm. Buck convinced him to hand him the money and he said he would give it to the girls, no problem. Buck took the money and walked away. Terrible human being. Absolutely terrible because that's just going to hurt their reputation. Now, uh, with all this going on, Victoria has uh, some time to think and realizing that her gifts and her visions have more or less come true because she was told that she was going to be very grand and become big and she's got a job to do and she thinks this is it. But also being very much in agreement with the policies of the National Women's Suffrage Association, the one with the multiple women's and she walks along with Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who were the biggest leaders of the National Women's Suffrage Association. Victoria and them saw their charisma to help promote all these equalities that women were wanting and needing. And the two women in Victoria saw her charisma and her power over men because she's able to talk. Honestly, she's not like able to talk men into doing things, but she's, she's very persuasive, Victoria, because she believes in the power of herself, 32 years old. And I told you that things were about to get seriously juicy in this part two. This is exactly has become outrageous, but in a really good way. This is, I told you there was a particular point in her story. There were several, like making billions of dollars. You don't exactly see that coming, but this next paragraph that I'm going to read, which is something that she wrote, 
is the specific reason why Victoria Woodhull is particularly remembered by people today. Are you ready for it? 1870, again, Victoria's 32 years old, puts an ad in the New York Herald. And this is exactly what the ad said. While others of my sex devoted themselves to a crusade against the laws that shackle the women of this country, I assert my individual independence. While others sought to show that there is no valid reason why women should be treated inferior to men, I boldly enter the arena of politics and business and exercise the rights I already possess. I therefore claim the right to speak for the unenfranchised women of this country, and I now announce myself as a candidate for the presidency. Holy mackerel. Uh-huh. That's it. I mean, she must have had a vision. Nope. No. Okay. Are you sure? Yep. I'm going with she had a vision. I'm going to go with it anyway. <laughs> I think she got encouragement from Anthony and Stanton mostly that she has this oral gift of telling, uh, of, of persuading, but it's just she's charismatic she's persuasive she's all for these equal rights for women that they did not have at the time i mean she made a she, she divorced her second husband in protest of the shackles of marriage at the time despite the two of them still being together like that's why i keep calling it a common law marriage because they're not officially a married couple anymore yeah but she did it as a protest yep so this is the personality of victoria woodhull in order to keep a log of her status as a candidate and to progress her candidacy as she would go on to make speeches, Victoria and Tennessee, not already having enough to do running two locations of a brokerage firm and working with Vanderbilt, they start their own newspaper called Woodhull, Cha uh, Woodhull Claflin Weekly, also just known as The Weekly. And it became one of the most successful newspapers in New York. The one of the partly reasons that became incredibly successful, even though they had no knowledge of newspapers before, her uh, her common law husband James Blood, he had a relative in Jersey who had his own successful newspaper firm, and they brought him to New York to help run their paper. So, but yeah, they they had some incredibly successful women-owned businesses in the eighteen late eighteen sixties, early eighteen seventies. Amazing, just amazingly fantastic. In September of 1870, not long after she proclaimed her candidacy for the presidency, she began her platform on the rights for women to vote, stating that it is the constitution that women are equal citizens and therefore have the right to vote. And I'll get into that in a little bit. She would also go on to quote, advocate for the eight hour workday, graduated income tax, social welfare programs, and profit sharing. So she was a very progressive. It was just going and going and going. I mean, much like the NWSA, if why stop at just votes for women? Why not keep going to try to acquire equal rights for women? I mean, really. Yeah. I mean, if you get anything, that's better than nothing. But why not just try to go for the whole pot? Fair enough. 
In December of 1870, she wrote in their paper, the, uh, the weekly, she put in something that would be called the Woodhull Memorial. At the time, in this particular land of politics, a memorial was a statement of facts or petition that were presented to a legislative body. And because the memorial was very popular, as well as the newspaper, it made the rounds and all newspapers. And because of this, she would be invited to present her facts written in this memorial topic of equal rights for women and the rights to vote to the House Judiciary Committee. Now, there are some that say she was the first female stockbroker or the first, there's a whole bunch of firsts that she's claimed to be the first woman to run for president, not exactly true. I'll get to that in a bit. Um, she was the first woman to not own a, a brokerage firm, but she was the first woman to be a female stockbroker. She was not the first woman to present to Congress, but she was the first to present to a judiciary committee is slightly different, but still a lot of firsts. Now, because she's a woman, this was a major event. And in January of 1871, she would present her memorial to the Judiciary Committee. And while she is giving her speech, she gets quite nervous because this is a very big step. And she's also already proclaimed a, to be a candidate for the presidency. And while she's trying to calm her nerves, she claims her guides came to her aid and they help quell her nerves. And when she shares her memorial, she tells the committee, quote, the founding fathers used the term persons, which neither specifies male nor female. The basis of equality is constructed by all and for all, and from which all partake of equal rights, privileges, and immunities. The sovereign will of the people is expressed in our written constitution, which is the supreme law of the land. The Constitution makes no distinction of sex. The Constitution defines a woman born and naturalized in the United States as a subject, the jurisdiction therewith to be a citizen and recognize the rights of citizens to vote. All people of both sexes have the right to vote unless prohibited by a special limiting term. No such limiting terms exist in the Constitution. She's not wrong. No, she's not wrong. And what was even more surprising to learn about this is after her speech, the representative for Massachusetts at the time, Charles Sumner, which I believe is the one who caned some guy to death in Congress, or nearly did. That was some crazy stuff going on back then. He, after her speech, turns to the committee and says, Does it can anyone counteract anything she has spoken of in her statement? Mind you, the entire body is made of men, old, white men. And no one can refute anything she has currently said. And he actually relates to Isabella Beecher, which was, I'll get to the Beechers in, in just a, a minute, but they were a very, very well-known uh, family in the nation at the time. Isabella Beecher was one of the sisters. And she was an advocate for women's rights, but she was for the American Women's Suffrage Association, only fighting for the rights for women to be able to vote. Charles Sumner turns to Isabella's speech, or he, he relates to Isabella Beecher not long after the memorial is given. And 
specifically tells her, this is the first time in my life that disenfranchisement means the same to you that it would for me. Yeah, that's all I have to say. Yeah. Because I think, I believe, it, if I understand it correctly, at that time, I mean, just given the politics of America at the time, a lot of women were like, no, we want the right to vote. We want equality. We are citizens. We're not, we're not, we're not slaves. We're not shackles. We're not second-class citizens to be ignored. We are equal people, as is every other person in this country, and we should not be denied the rights that are written down in our constitution. I mean, one of the main causes for the, I believe it's the British suffragette movement was, hey, you know what? We pay taxes, and yet we don't have the right to vote. Why not? And that's a fair point. I just said you can't disagree with that fair point. Nope, that's a very fair point. That's why, I mean, I think that's DC's motto is no taxation without representation. Not quite a sexist issue, but still a, a votes versus representation issue. But apparently it was you know, women wanting equal rights and the right to vote and millions of women in the country wanting that. It didn't occur to the men in politics that women actually wanted these. They're like, no, no, you guys just want to stay at home and raise the children, right? You don't actually care about politics. No, no, we don't. No, no, we definitely care about the things that happen to us and our rights and our equality set forth in the Constitution, just as much as you do. After her major, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to add, if not more. Well, yeah, given all the disenfranchisement women have gone through in history, I would say, yeah, probably more than that. After her major success with this speech and her presentation to the committee, her speech is printed all over the country now, and she's even invited to meet with President Ulysses S. Grant, which she does. She travels down to D.C. And while he's there, knowing her reputation, now knowing that she's a candidate for the presidency, knowing that she is one of the leaders for the NWSA and the rights for women, equal rights and right to vote. At one point in her tour with Grant, it said that they were, I may have been the Oval Office, turns to her and says, this chair may be yours one day. Don't we wish? Yeah. Yeah. I think she would make a really interesting, presuming she can get anything done through Congress, I think she'd make a really interesting president. I honestly do. But it's Victoria Woodhull, and what goes up must come down, which is pretty much a model of her life. As she ascends the political landscape and continues to co-run the businesses with her sister, Tenny, and gets nationwide attention and reverence for her uh, suffragette associations, her early life and her family begin to make headlines. Not good. And if you're not familiar with that, go back to listen to part one. The Beecher family, as I just briefly mentioned, Isabella Beecher, the Beecher family was a very well-known, very religious family who also had ties with the more conservative AWSA and they do not like Victoria. It's not so much that they're part of the AWSA and she's part of the NWSA. It's that Victoria has dirt on the beachers. And also, if you've listened to our part two of the Sparrow Wars and the American Sparrow Wars, you'll also recognize 
Henry Ward Beecher as one of, if you remember, I think you might remember this, Lord, that one preacher that popped up and said that uh, Elliot Coos should start planning his will because he's about to get fire and brimstoned. Same guy. Same guy. Oh, Same guy's coming up. Yeah. And if you're not familiar with the Beechers, but you may be familiar with the name Harriet Beecher Stowe, author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yep, definitely familiar with that name. One of Henry's sisters. Shocking. Right. Henry Beecher, not only an incredibly nationwide well-known preacher, an orator, but he's also known, despite being married and telling his wife that she can't have extramarital affairs, and he's preaching that women... That, that people should not have extramarital affairs and people in marriage should be monogamous. He is a well-known adulterer slash womanizer because of course he is. Haven't heard of a man at that time that wasn't. Not at least not one that has a major nationwide reputation. At one point, Victoria's talking to his sister, Catherine, because there's a lot of features. And she tells her, and Catherine is telling Victoria about her particular views on uh, women's rights and free love and monogamy and such. And Victoria rebuts what Catherine tells her by quote saying, you are not for free love, but what these stories I hear about your brother, Henry, and how he spends his times at brothels. Um, yeah, I'm calling you out here. <laughs> yeah, Catherine was appalled, appalled by Victoria calling out her and her family's hypocrisy. And from that time on, Catherine Beecher would refer to both Victoria and Tennessee as those two Roth or those two prostitutes. And Harriet Beecher so would specifically start to call Victoria a harlot. Shocking. Not right. really. I mean, when you have dirt on someone that's up there, yeah, it's going to be annoying. Wait till you hear the details of the dirt, though. I'll get to it. While she's in D.C., Victoria, presenting at the committee and meeting with members of Congress and meeting the president, things at the family home in New York are really heating up. Because if there wasn't already enough family members there, including her ex-husband, Canning Woodhull, who's she, he, he pops up with the family, and Victoria's like, uh, uh, you got, you're, you're, you're drunk and addicted to opium and I'm, I just pity you, so come on in. You've got nowhere to stay, just fine, come in. Now, if you remember her sister, Polly, who was the one who not shortly after she got married was found out having an affair with someone else is also the one who followed her husband around potentially with a dead baby in her arms. Polly's husband moves in. Or I guess Polly's new husband moves in. I'm sorry. The uh yeah, because they divorce. And they, along with their mother Roxy, begin to scheme against Tennessee and Victoria because these girls cannot escape this family, no matter how hard they try. Keep in mind this entire time, Tennessee is still Vanderbilt's live-in nurse and mistress. Roxy contacts Vanderbilt by this point 
and tries to blackmail him and states saying, I know what you did and I want money for it. I don't know what that thing is though. I don't think he knew either. Nope, I think she's making it up, but she's trying to blackmail Vanderbilt just for more money that the daughters obviously don't have enough of because they're squandering away their children's fortunes. Immediately, not wanting any more family drama with this crazy family, Vanderbilt immediately drops any association with Tennessee and Victoria until he dies. This coming from the man that was just proposed like how long after his wife's death i mean not that long but he's like your your family is nuts i want nothing more to do with them and with them with you comes them and i can't have that now despite all of this scandalizing victoria is still adamant about her run for the presidency and continues to tour across the nation and at one point She's giving a speech for the NWSA. And those in attendance actually claim that it is one of the best speeches they'd ever heard in their lives. And to close off this particular speech, I have a, a quote from the end of the speech. And she says, women are entirely unaware of their power. Like an elephant led by a string, they are subordinated by those who are most interested in holding them in slavery. We shall proceed to call another convention expressly to frame a new constitution and erect a new government. We mean treason. We mean secession. And on a thousand times grander scale than that of the South, we are plotting a revolution. We will overthrow the bogus republic and will plant a government of righteousness in its stead. I will say at least she knows how to work a speech. Unbeknownst to her, that exact morning before she goes off to give the speech, she's with Colonel Blood. And he hides the morning newspaper from her because there's something in that newspaper he does not want her to know, at least not until after she's given the speech. In the article, it states that her mother, Roxy, has gone to court and file charges against Colonel Blood, implicating him in a scheme to plot her daughters against her. Can these people, I, I don't know what I want done with them, but I don't want them in this story anymore. And unfortunately, I don't have a choice in that because I, I didn't want them in part two at all, but- I don't they're... like that option. Because of Victoria's popularity and the rise, uh, or on the rise, the court was packed when her, uh, when Roxy and Colonel Blood took the stand. Under oath, Roxy declared about Colonel Blood, quote, my daughters were good daughters until they got in with that man Blood. He threatened my life several times and says he would not go to bed until he washed his hands in my blood. Talk about dramatic. And Tennessee is there in the courts defending Colonel Blood and her sister, and her sister's reputation she stands up in court not on oath she stands up in the crowd and causes a stir when she's completely negating her mother's statement saying none of this is true none of this never happened but she's not under oath so she doesn't get the testimony then because this involves her ex-husband 
and her mostly because it's, it's a charge against blood against Clancy and Victoria. Victoria's brought to the stand and her relationship with her ex-husbands both are now called into question because remember Canning is living with them and she divorced blood and defiance of the, the laws around marriage but they're still living together. They're not officially separated. Over the time of the trial, Victoria, Victoria's family issues are brought even more into light and her reputation as a progressive candidate for the presidency is constantly called into question. After the trial, because if this couldn't get any worse, Roxy then accuses Blood of being a communist. And if that sounds strange coming from the 1870s, keep in mind, of the major French Revolution of the 1870s. Not the big one from the 1770s, the one from the 1870s. The Americans at this time are fear of the spread of communism, which is taking hold of uh, France at the time. And at one point, not during the trial, but just at one point, Utica is confronting Colonel Blood, finds, finds a chair, grabs it and smashes him with it. She is jailed on the charge of assault, thankfully. And then, of course, after this, Polly's husband is now found dead in the house. And scandal after scandal continue with this family. It doesn't end. Very soon, even though she's for the NWSA, the AWSA publicly distances themselves from Victoria. because, But at this time, Victoria still has the backing of Stanton and Anthony because they're like, you're really progressive. We like your stances. Your family's nuts, but we're going to take anyone we can at this point, And you're really good at talking. Victoria retorts with the AWSA by putting an editorial out saying, I know a lot of things, ladies, those in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Victoria then works with, at the paper with a man named Theodore Tilton, who also runs a newspaper. Tilton is very mentionable because he is the ex-best friend of Henry Ward Beecher. He is his ex-best friend because Beecher slept with Tilton's wife. Ooh. I said, Victoria had dirt on the Beechers. This is it. Oh, man. This Tilton Beecher adultery, uh, it went to court. It became one of the most scandalous court cases in the late 1800s, in America at least. Oh boy. Yeah. And Tilton and Victoria actually start writing her speeches together and put out press briefs. And on September 20th of 1871, Victoria is making a major speech for her candidacy in front of a crowd of 3,000 people, which is very large for that time. The banner above her literally read, Victoria C. Woodhull, the principles of sexual freedom, free love, marriage, divorce, and prostitution. She wanted to legalize prostitution if that wasn't unfair. No, I got it. That's brave of her though. By the way, her middle initial C stands for California. Her name is Victoria California Woodhull or Claflin, if you want to go with her a mini name. Interesting. She's, she's California. Her sister's Tennessee. Interesting. 
Well, I think they're all like, like, okay, she's California, sister is Tennessee, Utica, I believe is a city in New York, unless I'm confusing it with something else. Yeah, people have uh, interesting family names. And again, she's very nervous with this speech because 3000 probably one of the biggest crowds she's ever talked at. And again, her guides come to her assistance. And during this speech, this is gonna be a little long, but this is one portion of her speech. She states, the wise acres stops and tells us that everyone must not pursue happiness in his or her own way. I say they're wrong. They're just humbugging you. What I believe to be the truth, I endeavor to practice and advocating it, permit me to say that I shall speak so plainly that none may complain that I do not make myself clear. Marriage must consist of love or of law. People may be married by law. They may also be married by love and lack of sanction of law. Law cannot compel two people to love. This is a matter concerning these two and of no other living soul. Where there is no love as a basis of marriage, there should be no marriage. I do not care whether it is that sexual commerce that results from the dominant power of one sex over the other, compelling him or her into submission against the instincts of love, and where hate or disgust is present, where it be gilded palaces of Fifth Avenue or any loneliest, pearliest of Green Street. There is prostitution and all the law that a thousand citizens assemblies may pass cannot make it otherwise. I mean, Lord, what do you say to that kind of a speech? Because, or even how do you respond? Because she's not, again, she's not wrong. No, she's not wrong. You should be it, it, like, I mean, the, the, I, I, I mean, I can't speak for the time, but I think I can speak vaguely for the time. There was certainly a concept of homosexuality, but it was certainly outlawed. But she's, I think, in her pro, uh, profession for wanting free love as part of equal rights, she is kind of probably advocating for love of homosexuality as well, which I totally agree with. Because she's such a persuasive orator. Oh, yeah. She's definitely, like, challenging the whole yeah. situation. Absolutely. The 3,000 people in the crowd cheer loudly and cheer her on to continue. And when she's done, loud applause from everyone. Then, in the station above her where she's giving her speech, there's a hissing sound. And it gets louder and louder. And then the crowd sort of just drowns it out because it gets so loud, but it continues. And then it gets louder and then it gets louder and then it gets louder. The box above where Victoria is at, her sister, drunk sister Utica is there and stands up for everyone to see. And she says to Victoria in the crowd, how would you feel if you didn't know who your father was? Victoria blows her off and continues because obviously she's just there to mess with her. Utica becomes even more defiant and making more of a scene until people start beginning to ask, who are you? Utica stands up and proudly declares, I'm her sister. And I guess 
it's interesting because the banner above Victoria says free love. And so she's promoting free love, but I guess it wasn't apparent to most people that she also practiced free love, which I think kind of is a little bit hypocritical. She literally has said, I practice, but I preach. But people back then were like, yeah, free love is cool. Everyone should be able to free love. But if you practice it, that's not good. I'm like, what is this hypocrisy? I don't get it. So Utica is making a scene and calling out Victoria and someone in the crowd then asks Victoria, are you a free lover? Even though she admitted that she practices it. She goes, yes, I am. And now the crowd's unsure about Victoria and her right, her stance for women's rights. The following day, one of the local papers runs a headline and specifically says, died of free love, the women's suffrage movement. I, I'm with you. I don't get it. If you're gonna, if you're going to support the idea of free love, you got to support it all around. It's not just one little thing. Exactly. Otherwise, it's a, it's it's a form of hypocrisy. Oh yeah, most definitely. Yep, that's the headline: "Died of Free Love: The Women's Suffrage Movement." Which, of course, it didn't. And eventually, women get the right to vote like 20 years after England gets the right to vote for women. But now 1872 comes around and that is election year. By this time, Victoria has had all of these scandals and she's begun to lose some of the general public, obviously. She then comes up with a plan in order to get funding because it's very expensive to go out and run from the list of adulterers that she's been informed about by both the clients that she's had and her friend's clients that they've had. I need money for my Candace's, Candace's Candace for my running and says, if you don't supply me with money, I will publish your affairs. She also claims that the People's Party were members of the National Women's Suffrage Association and asks for that members of both parties name her as a candidate for president because she's not officially on the ballot yet. You know, she has to, it's like when we have the primaries now, you're not on the ballot until you want a gotcha. primary or something along those lines. Though she gets, and Susan B. Anthony tells her that the People's Party are not part of the NWSA. She did not win the nomination from the party. So a few days later, Victoria goes to the People's Party and, and they officially nominate her as a candidate for president. Now, here's a surprise that I did not know about, and you will really love this one. Once she acquires this nomination, mind you, she's not 35 which is in the constant, I think it's a law, I think you have to be 35, to become president. She would have turned seven, 30, 35 in the fall of uh, old enough 35. So technically, yes, but technically no. But once she acquires the nomination, she thinks about and finally settles on a decision for her running mate. I would ask you to guess who, but I don't think you will. So who is it? Frederick Douglass. Okay. <laughs> Yes, 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 the Frederick Douglass. Now, um, Douglass, though maybe aware of Victoria Woodhull, after hearing claims that she's nominated him as, his, as her vice president, he's like, I, I don't know anything about this and I'm not gonna be included in this running. I, I, I'm exiting on this one because um, Douglass did not want, so Grant's running for reelection this same year, which I, he would win. And Douglas didn't want, according to victoriawoodhull.com, Frederick Douglass did not want to run against President Grant. He denied the nomination and was an elector for Grant in 1872. Also, 
despite given just given the, the the things going on at the time I do it's very few that people thought Victoria would actually win and then nominating the most respected African-American in the country to be your running mate I'm not sure would have succeeded even that here's an interesting thing though according to victoriawoodhull.com quote while the occasional newspaper in 1872 reported people casting votes for Victoria, no ballots have actually survived from her 1872 run. There is a surviving ballot for the second woman who ran for president, Belva Lockwood, for the year of 1884. Lockwood, incidentally, was president when Victoria was nominated in 1872. In 1888, Lockwood ran for president again, this time with Victoria's nephew-in-law, Charles S. Wells as her vice president candidate. Pretty cool. Now, though she gained quite a bit of popularity after her nomination, it obviously invited even more scrutiny. <sighs> At this time, Thomas Nast, who was a very major political cartoonist, begins to put out slanderous uh, illustrations of her. And they will be on the post when we post this up. But one of his illustrations, he portrays her as Mrs. Satan. So very imaginative. Yeah. And in this um, illustration, this caricature, she's dressed as Mrs. Satan. And behind her is a woman who's carrying not only a drunk man, but also children on her back. This isn't Satan. This is the one behind Satan. And in the captions for this illustration, Mrs. Satan turns to the woman carrying her load of brood and says, be saved by free love, to which this woman carrying her passed out unconscious drunk husband and her several children say, get thee behind me, Mrs. Satan. Which that may be a quote from the Bible, apparently. I'm going to say it probably is. Well, yeah, just maybe not the Mrs. Satan part. No, no, yeah. get behind me. Get <laughs> Mrs. Satan was not a thing. Right. Um, but continuing with the up, must come down portion despite her popularity despite her orating skills and her persuasiveness and her charisma her family is nuts and with all this scrutiny of her plus the court cases her mother brought on and among other several things the lease on their brownstone home gets canceled and they all have to move out just kick them out no the entire Every single person in that brownstone has to move out, not just the family. Oh, I know. I'm just saying she should just kick them out. Don't go with them anywhere. Wherever she goes next, don't bring them along. They're not doing her any favors. They never have. Yeah. They set up a new house. And in this new house, they have spiritualist meetings. And during one of these meetings, her sister Utica is there, very drunk. Of course she's there because the whole family's there. But during a very serious spiritualist meeting, Utica is openly soliciting the men at the meeting for sex. Not cool. Not cool at all. Ruining that reputation some more. And at one point, a chancellor, apparently of the Council of Spain, comes to visit their home to talk with Victoria. And when he visits, he finds a 15-year-old girl crying. Turns out this is Polly's daughter and Polly's daughter is now pregnant. Polly's husband 
at this time has run off and become the Lieutenant Governor of Kansas, leaving his family abandoned, of course. The daughter, 15 years old and pregnant, is now sent to live with her father in Kansas, where she unfortunately dies of childbirth. And continuing with the family, Victoria's first ex-husband, Canning, is also there because she's still giving him pity because he can't support himself. And he's given a treatment for his opium addiction, which means taking him off the opium, mostly taking him off the alcohol. What apparently is a common occurrence for people who take drugs is that they sort of, or at least in most cases, will substitute it with alcohol. And you don't really die from opium addictions as you do more so from the alcohol poisoning because you subvert it with alcohol. And if you don't do the withdrawal correctly, yeah, yeah, you can die from alcohol poisoning. Canning dies from his withdrawal, or at least his attempt to take him off of his addiction. So scandal upon scandal continues to happen with this family. And this is a point where the NWSA, Elizabeth, Katie Stanton, and Susan B. Anthony now distance themselves from Victoria. She is losing all of her external support. Victoria is not going to go down with a fight, though, and continues to campaign and continues to give speeches and continues to remain her party's nomination for the president. In preparation for one of her speeches, she tries to get Henry Ward Beecher to talk at one of her rallies, telling him that he practices free love, so sure so that works. Beecher doesn't show up to the rally. He refuses to do so. And finally, fed up with all this hypocrisy from the rich white elite, Victoria, with Tilton's help, publishes her knowledge of the affair between Beecher and Tilton's wife in the papers, which also ends up being one of the most paper. And in that exact same paper, she publishes information about what something that was known as the French Ball of 1869. And in this article, she Quote, writes, 3,000 of the best men and 4,000 of the worst women in New York. At this ball, apparently described in this paper, a mosh pit of some kind is happening on different levels of the ball, where the men would apparently toss women into the air and in various stages of undress as well. So it's very debauchery. The article also names some of the very rich men in New York and affairs that they had had, particularly two of them that they had had with 15-year-old girls at the party. Yeah, well, I think this is not a good move on her. No, but I, I mean, she's kind of backed into a corner with everything in a sense, so I can totally understand wanting to do this. And she told them that she would do it anyway. The rich elite of New York came for Victoria's blood. They hired a man named Anthony Comstock, who was the president of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, which actually would be the precursor to the DEA, much like the Pinkertons were the precursor to the FBI. Because the article of the French Ball of 1869, as well as the affair between Beecher and Tilton, were so salacious, Comstock took the article. He was hired against, uh, to, to fight against Victoria in the paper. He took their, their article in their paper and mailed it to himself, but mailed it to himself and to a different state. 
This allowed him to go and arrest Victoria and Tennessee both on the charges of interstate obscenity through the mail, even though he sent the mail. But it was their newspaper. Both women were put in jail. And because they were women at the time, they were not allowed to testify on their own behalf. During the trial, the judge directly faces and tells the jury, you should find them guilty. Both women, both the sisters are put into a place called the Tombs, one of the worst prisons in New York at the time. And because of their wealth that they still had, they were able to pay the bail but because of her psychotic family, they don't have much money else afterwards. And because their paper and this particular edition of the paper was one of the best selling in New York at the time, the court also put in a, a charge of shutting down their paper while they were in jail so they could no longer make money. Despite the judge directly trying to influence the jury, does not. Sorry, that's actually a surprising one jury didn't find them guilty well i think oh, jesus come to light that comstock created the situation that the girls found themselves in because they weren't the ones who sent the mail it was just their paper they're not responsible for sending it through the mail and because the judge directly wanted the women to be found guilty and the jury did not find them guilty he rips into the jury at the end of the court and specifically says this is the most outrageous verdict ever recorded. It is shameful and infamous. I am ashamed of the jury. Our judges were supposed to be impartial. <laughs> They're not even impartial today. Some of them. Fair enough. And to add salt to the wound of this ever-growing scandalous life of Victoria Woodhull, this is finally the point that Colonel Blood says that he's had enough. And he officially separates from her after the trial. So Victoria pretty much now only has her and Tennessee left to each other. Mm, that's sad. Yeah. The following year in 1877, Cornelius Commodore Vanderbilt dies. At the reading of his will, it seemed that there may be a contested will and it looked as if maybe Victoria and Tennessee might have actually been written to receive something from Vanderbilt in one will. His, huh. Yeah, Vanderbilt's son, who is set to take over the business, does not want to do this because Victoria and Tennessee, particularly Victoria, has brought up so much scandal against their family. He really just wants nothing more to do with them. So he offers them a deal. I will give you money lots of money if you leave the country and do not contest the will i'm thinking they did not take it no they both moved to england in 1878 oh they did okay yeah oh that means they left their family behind yeah which means they have fewer troubles oh yeah finally oh between both Victoria and Tennessee, this is their fairy tale ending that they both deserved for so long. I'm just so happy that the rest oh, of I haven't the finished. just gone. I told you they just both moved to England. I didn't tell you what happened yet. Oh, no. 
No, 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 no. It's all good. I told you it's a fairy tale ending. And I didn't tell okay. you. Okay. 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 I forgot about that part. But keep going then. Keep going. No, no. This, this is, is a- not a fairy tale ending. I would have said we're ending it here. I need to go. I can't. I can't. No, 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 no. While they're there, Tennessee, again, being the more beautiful of the two, meets a very wealthy widower and becomes Lady Cook, the Countess of Montserrat. Countess of Montserrat. Mm -hmm. Holy mackerel. He had Vanderbilt before. Now she's a countess. Again, she was just a mistress in Vanderbilt's book. Yep. Ooh, and they may, they re, they remain married until they die. Does, does that mean Victoria was also taken care of? Yep. Victoria would end up meeting a man named John Bidolph Martin, a very wealthy banker. They have to court for six years, though, because of Victoria's reputation in America. His family did not like her at first. It took six years for them to accept her. Yep. But they would end up getting married. And not long after, she also opens up a paper, because now she's pretty good at running a paper, called The Humanitarian. And it was mostly a way to also soften her (laughs) scandalous reputation from back in America. She would also, as I mentioned before, she was all for various social welfare programs, would open up a kindergarten and promote early education, which was a very rare thing to do at the time. Kindergartens and early education, I don't think really took off until after the turn of the century, except in Germany where it started. Her and Tennessee would remain in England the rest of their lives. Victoria by now is 38 when she moves to England. And both of them live in relative peace until they both die and relative peace and a lot of wealth. Victoria dies on June 10th of 1927 at the age of 88 in her sleep. Wow. Long enough to see women get the right to vote in both England and America. Good for her. Yep. I'm not quite done just yet either. No, it's good. Don't worry. They're just no, I'm, I'm just waiting. <laughs> there are several memorials to her in both England and America. And most of this comes from the wiki, um, Wikipedia page. There is one uh, a memorial to her in Tewkesbury Abbey in England. There's a historical marker for her in Homer, Ohio, a memorial clock tower for her at the Robbins Hunter Museum in Granville, Ohio. She was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in 2001. The Woodhull Institute for Ethical Leadership was founded in her name in 1997. The Woodhull Sexual Freedom Alliance was founded in her name in 2003. In 2008, she received the Ronald H. Brown Trailblazer Award, which was accepted on her behalf by Mary L. Shearer. Shearer is not only the owner of the trademark Victoria Woodhull, but is also the great-great-grand stepdaughter of Colonel Blood. There's an opera titled Mrs. President, which premiered in 2012. And in March of 2017, 
Amazon Studios announced that they had a green light to create a biographical film about her because there hasn't been one yet and there should be. Of course there should be. I, I would honestly, I would make it into a film. I'd make it into a, a mini series or a TV show. There's too much here to put into a two hour long film. Oh yeah. No, no. It should definitely be a, a mini TV series worth like five episodes with an hour an episode at minimum. At least, or a TV series. Yeah. At like 24 or something where it progresses a little bit by bit. And for anyone listening who wants more information, again, I did not, I, I, there's a lot about her life that I, I did skip over partly for sake of time, partly for sake of, I did not want to go deeply into the uh, abuse uh. And, and all that kind of stuff. You know, I wanted to keep this more family friendly than some other podcasts. But yeah. if you want even more information about Victoria, Three things to check out are Wood, victoria-woodhull.com, which is where also where most of my stuff comes from. Two, as I mentioned before, the Profiles and Eccentricity podcasts two-parter on Victoria Woodhull for even way more information than what I've already stated. And three, a very popular book called Bar uh, by Barbara Goldsmiths called Other Powers, The Age of Suffrage, Spiritualism, and the scandalous Victoria Woodhull. There are also six publications that Woodhull published in her life. Um, they're on the wiki page, and named specifically if you want to further uh, any readings on, of that were written by Victoria herself. Did you enjoy that roller coaster? That was up, down, down, up, all around. Around in an infinity circle eight. That was all over the place. I said it would be. I said this story is full of twists and turns and unexpected surprises. Yeah, don't forget the loop-de-loop. -loop. But uh, yeah, that's that's everything for Victoria Woodhull. Yep. And uh, that'll also do for uh, this two-part episode of History Explains It All on the Weird Histories. I don't know that there's a weird history that can top this. Mm, I'm I know sure. <laughs> I'm sure I could come up with a topic that may top this, but not in the same sense. But I'm sure that I have other weird histories I can make two parters out of. Oh, yeah. There's definitely quite a few. Oh, yeah. But we do hope to see you next week as we trek through history to explain it all. Woo. Bye. Bye-bye.